Welcome, everyone, uh, once again to tonight's Bible study. Uh, we are continuing in the book of Romans, and we are in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. And the title of our lesson is Guilty. Now, we've said this over and over again, that we're in a particular section of Romans. And tonight, we come to the end of that section, this, this great indictment of the human race that began back in chapter 1, verse 18. And as I've said numerous times, the whole section of this letter is really written for one purpose, and that is to bring everybody to the realization that they are guilty before God. And of course, the reason he's doing that is because he wants to show us that we need the gospel. Now, in the first part of chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, Paul has just finished talking to the Jews, and now he turns back to everyone in general. Let's read verse 9. He says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Now, what does that phrase mean, all under sin? Well, the Greek term has this idea that we're under captivity, that we're under the reign and dominion of sin. In other words, human beings are born into this world already enslaved to sin in their nature. Now, tonight... I'm going to show uh, or point out four uh, important things, and I'm going to stop at each one and, and say, okay, this is the important thing that I'm pointing out. So here's the first one. If you were to go and visit a, a foreign country and you met somebody from that country, probably the first thing they would ask you is, what's your name? But beyond that, what's the first thing that they would want to uh, know about you? Well, they would not start with, well, how many kids do you have, or what kind of car do you drive, or where do you buy your groceries, or where do you bank at? In other words, they don't start with the details. The very first thing they're going to want to know about you is where are you from? What is your country of origin? Or, or years ago, what they would say, what kingdom do you belong to? Now, let me say this. What I'm about to say is absolutely basic, basic to understanding the Christian faith. You see, the Christian faith never starts with the details. See, this is where so many people go wrong. They think, well, I'm living a good life. I'm doing good things. Therefore, I must be a Christian. If I, I've said things like this, you've heard me say before, let's go to Winn-Dixie and let's just stop 100 people and say, are you a Christian? And many of them would say, yeah. Well, then you ask them, well, why are you a Christian? You'd hear things like this. Well, I read my Bible. I pray. I give money to charity. I, I treat other people well. Now listen, those are all good things that we should all do. But let me tell you, you can do all those things and not be a Christian at all because you're in the wrong kingdom. You see, you can do all those things and be in the kingdom of darkness, not in the kingdom of light. See, that's, the, that's where Christianity starts. It's the kingdom or the realm to which you belong that really counts. Paul says this, and this, is, this really is a staggering statement, that all human beings are born into the realm and the kingdom of, of sin. In Colossians chapter 1, when Paul is trying to describe salvation, this is how he describes it. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. You see, that is where Christianity starts. All mankind, by nature, we're under the guilt of sin, the power of sin, the pollution of sin. This is Paul's fundamental statement, and everything else flows from that. Now, 
this universality of sin has already been made, or the case for it has already been made. In fact, Paul says in, in, in verse 9, we've previously charged. In other words, I've already told you this before. But here, in starting with verse 10, he's going to prove his case even more. And in order to do that, he's going to quote some Old Testament scriptures. In fact, he will begin in verse 10 with, as it is written. Let's read those verses. Paul says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. There's, they've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not even one. And of course, there he's quoting Psalms 14, Psalms 53, and Ecclesiastes 7. Now, I want you to uh, notice something uh, there right in the middle. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that in just a second. Jonathan Edwards said this, If the words which the apostle uses do not most fully and determinately signify a universality of sin, no words ever used in the Bible are sufficient to do so. Now, here's my second thing. I said I'm going to point these out. Here's the second one. I want you to look right in the middle of that verse. After he says there's none righteous and all this, he said this, There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. Now, I want you for a moment to imagine in your mind a road or a path that leads to the one true God. Just imagine that in your mind. Now, imagine there is nobody on that path. See, that's what Paul says. They've all turned aside. They've all gone down different side streets. They've all gone down different paths. And, and on the road seeking after God, there's not a single human being. Now, here's what's important in that. See, what we see in these verses is that being under sin is not about a ruined relationship with people. Being under sin is first and foremost about having a ruined relationship with God. See, this, this needs to be firmly fixed in each of our minds, that we'll understand, as David did in Psalm 51, that when we sin, it is against God and God alone that we, have, that we commit that sin. See, this is why it is so sad, and let me tell you, it is so pointless, absolutely pointless, when people argue that they're a good person. See, if you ask somebody, uh, uh, tell me why you're a good person, it'll always come back to they treat other people decently. I don't steal. I don't kill. I don't, I don't uh, 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 lie very much. I, don't, I give to charity. I, I, I pay my taxes. I'm a good citizen. See, it's all about our relationships with people here on earth. Guys, that's not the point at all. That's not the point at all. The question is, do you love Jesus Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? I remember years ago I heard a story, and I think this was Bobby Bowden. I'm not 100% sure, but I think he told a story about when he was in high school. And he played baseball, and he hit a, uh, he hit a ball out to the fence, and he, he ran around first base, and he rounded second, and he rounded third, and the coach sent him home, and, and he, he slid into home, and he was safe. And, of course, he jumps up and dusts himself off, and he looks over to the dugout, fully expecting that all his teammates will be running out to meet him and to congratulate him, but nobody was moving. And he realized in that instant something was wrong, and so he turned back to the field to look, and if you know anything about baseball, they were already appealing to the umpire at first base. You see, the fact is, he missed first base. So second base, third base, home, none of that even mattered because he didn't hit first base. Now listen to me carefully. 
Can you imagine that someone goes through their whole life being good to other people? Somebody goes through their whole life treating other people the way they want to be treated. Somebody goes through their whole life trying to be the best person they can be. And they get to heaven and Jesus says, I never knew you. You see, the fact is they missed first base. All the other stuff they did, how they treated people, none of it amounted to anything because they missed first base. You see, God in his glory, and I've said this before already in this study, God and his glory are the most important things in this universe. And doing good for other people is of no value at all if you don't put God first in your life. See, this is what Paul said in, in Romans 3.12. They've all turned aside. They've all together become unprofitable. They've become like sour milk. They've become like a bad apple, stale bread, rancid meat. They're of no value. They're no profit. They're, they're only good to be thrown away. Now, you may ask me, well, wait, Derek, what about religious people? Aren't they seeking after God? Let me tell you, many re religious people are just seeking a replacement for God. People are, are seeking after designer gods that are made in their own image. They're seeking after security blanket gods that make them feel good when they're going through a hard time. Or maybe they're seeking after sentimental gods who loves them but doesn't hold them accountable for their sin. Let me tell you, those are all counterfeits. They are not the one true God of Scripture. Now, in verses 13 to 18, Paul moves from this universal condemnation and he moves back to individual condemnation. Let's read those verses. He said, Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they practice deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now he's quoting Psalms 5, 10, 36, 140, and Isaiah 59. Now, here's my third important message. Here's why Paul does this. You know, if you tell a group of people that they're a bunch of sinners, right? It's an odd thing, but people will actually find camaraderie in that. Have you ever seen a bumper sticker or somebody make a joke about, well, I'm going to go to hell and I want to be with all my friends and we're all going to have a good time? There's this idea that we're all in this together. But let me tell you how stupid that is. Listen, if you're in a dentist chair getting a root canal, does it make you feel better if you know a thousand other people are getting root canals at the same time? No. No, you suffer alone. See, what Paul wants us to see is not only is the entire human race guilty, but we are guilty as individuals. Verse 19, this is where he's been going for this whole section. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. This is meant, I believe, to remind us of a courtroom scene where the accused is brought in and he's got his defense planned. He's, he's got all these excuses and things. And then somebody breaks out a videotape that shows him caught red-handed. And he realizes there's nothing to say. All, all, any kind of protest or excuse would just be foolish. You see, when a person finally sees who they are and who God is, that's exactly what happens. In, in Job, as we get to chapter 40, Job has been uh, making his case before God and saying all these things. And then one day God shows up and God says, let me speak. 
And he begins to say things like, were you there when I laid the foundations of the world? Come on, were you there? And he just and he goes on and, and says all this. And at the end of that, in Job 40, Job says, I put my hand over my mouth. I put my hand over my mouth. I uttered things that I should not have said. In Matthew 22, Jesus tells a parable of a king who has a wedding feast, and they've invited all these people. And it says this, And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And it says, And the man was speechless. So he had no excuse, none at all. And the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of, of teeth. You see, this is what... Paul has been bringing us to since chapter 1. This is what he wants us to see. This is what he wants us to feel. He wants every individual to realize our guilt to the point that we absolutely shut our mouths, that we have no more excuses. Now, listen, we all have to come to this point. We all have to come to the point where we're speechless before the Lord of the universe, that we have no excuses the question is, when will you come to that point? You see, you can choose to come to that point in this life. You can choose to become what I call a spiritual beggar. To come before God and say, I got nothing. I got absolutely nothing. I, I need the righteousness that, that you have. And, he, and if you do that, fall on his mercy, he'll give it to you. Or you can wait till the day of judgment and you'll find yourself speechless on that day. But on that day, It'll be too late. Now, Paul has one final statement to make. Romans 3.20. He says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, my fourth important message from this lesson. As Paul closes out this section, and, and next week we're going to move to this whole new area where it's all about Jesus and the gospel, and it's going to be awesome. But as he closes out this section, he wants to clearly distinguish how the law works from how the gospel is going to work. And here's the last thing he says, the law can never make people righteous. Now, why is that? Well, Paul's answer to that is, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, what does that mean? Now, I know a lot of you may read that and say, well, that's easy. It means that the law tells us the difference between right or wrong. The law tells us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. But you see, that's not what Paul is saying at all here. In fact, if Paul is just talking about knowing what's right or wrong, then the law should be a help to righteousness, shouldn't it? But see, it's not. Now, later in Romans, Paul will explain to us what he really means. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says this, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But here's what he said. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Now, what's he talking about? Let me give an example. A teenager one day goes to the mailbox to get the mail. And he gets the mail and he comes back in the house and he flips through it real quick and he and he doesn't see anything with his name on it, and he just drops it down on the table, and he starts to walk away, right? And everything's fine. But then he notices that one of the little postcards flipped out, and he noticed on that postcard it says this, For parents' eyes 
only. Okay? Now, suddenly, guess what happens? Do I even have to tell you? Suddenly, there is a desire deep inside of him to read the card. By the way, if, if you took those words off of that, he has no desire. But the words on there actually creates in him a desire to rebel. See, the words on the card aren't wrong. There's nothing wrong with them. But through those words come the knowledge of sin. Through those words, the sin that was already there, that was lying dormant in his heart, suddenly makes itself known. See, this is what Paul means, for by the law comes the knowledge of sin. You see, when the law meets an unregenerate heart, a heart without the Spirit of God, the effect is, is it doesn't help us to do the right thing, it just reveals the rebellion that's already in our heart. Sin rises up in the presence of rules and regulations and laws and shows itself with vivid colors. You won't tell me what to do. I'm the master of my domain. So again, everywhere the, the law meets an unregenerate heart, it awakens resistance, not faith. It doesn't overcome sin. It only reveals sin by bringing it out and making it known. In other words, the law is diagnostic, not remedial. It's like an x-ray machine that can show you what's wrong, but it has no ability to heal you at all. It, it can accuse, but it can never pardon. See, the law doesn't set anybody right with God because it doesn't have the power to do that. Now, why not? Well, once again, we'll cover this later in, in Romans chapter 8. Paul says, For what the law could not do, it was weak through the flesh. You see, there was nothing wrong with God's law. God's law is holy and pure and beautiful. And it should help us by identifying what's right and what's wrong. But because of our human nature, it absolutely fails miserably. Our inability as human beings is what makes it weak. And that's why by the works of the law, nobody will ever get right with God. As I said, by the law uh, or by itself, the law just brings out sin, not faith. And when it does, it is death-giving, not life-giving. Can't justify us, only condemn us. Now that brings us to the end of this great section. And next week, finally, finally, Paul will turn to the good news. Let's pray. Father, as always, Lord, thank you for this great section of Romans. And I know that for those that have, have stuck it out for these few weeks, and we've talked a lot about law and guilt and all these different things, but God, help us, help us to see if there's anybody listening to the sound of my voice that doesn't know you, that's relying on their good works, relying on the fact that they're good people, relying on the fact that they, they do, they treat other people well. Father, somehow, some way, open their eyes, open their heart to see that they have missed first base, but they've still got time. They've still got time to go back and make it right. God, if there's anybody out there that's in that situation, Holy Spirit, do what you do. Make them alive. Open their eyes. Create in them a new heart, a clean heart. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.